Welcome back to the Rab Mountain People podcast with me, your host, Andy Cave. In this series, we celebrate 40 years of the brand Rab and chat with key people behind the scenes. Here is a glimpse of what's coming up. We gave our customers what we would want because all of us lot were really, in essence, customers. We weren't shopkeepers, we were customers. We happened to be behind the counter. When they were introducing friends, the most revolutionary piece of uh, rock climbing equipment since Pearl on Ropes. And we saw them and the first thing we said, right, we'll have 10 of each. I had customers who I wanted to have what was good and what I knew was good. I mean, I, I so probably true. had a reputation for being a bit of a sod, but I think in the end people realized I wasn't being commercially difficult. I wanted the right stuff. The reason I wanted it, because I wanted it. Our guest in this episode is Dick Turnbull, the man behind a great British climbing institution, the outside shop in Hathersage in the Peak District. An extremely accomplished alpinist, through the 1980s and 90s, Dick climbed many of the formidable Alpine North faces in winter. When it comes to climbing clothing and kit, his knowledge is unparalleled. He walks the talk. His two sons run the shop now, and they and their team have the same passion and knowledge. They view this as vital to their business. All serious brands want to have their products in outside. It's seen as a badge of honour. He traces his journey from Eton to the Eiger. We chat about his regular climbing partner, Flying Frank, the decorator. I travelled to Dick's house in Derbyshire, into his extraordinary basement man cave, to unearth his philosophy of success on both the mountain and in business. Grab yourself a drink and strap yourself in. This man is a force of nature. Dick, brilliant to see you. As nice always. to see you. It's been yes, a while. yes. Um, so here we are in your office. <laughs> Apparently, yes. Yeah, yeah. With, <laughs> My room. With everything you could ever need. In an uh, it, completely, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, completely. But look, let's. Where did you start out climbing, or where were you brought up? Oh, I was, well, I was born yeah. in Germany because my father was in the army, right? Uh, and didn't get to England until I was about four, right? Uh, via Malaya and places like that, which of course okay. I don't remember. Yeah. Um, and um, then I grew up, um, I had a privileged background to the extent that um, dad was in the army, mum stayed at home. Yeah. Um, they never bought a house because they always were moving. Right. So they rented houses, right. but they were lovely houses. And eventually um, we settled after time in Yorkshire and down in Surrey yeah. at um, the Sandhurst um, right. Military Academy where dad was in charge of one of the um, colleges for a while. Okay. And um, then we moved, after, when he retired, we moved to a, an absolutely beautiful house in Gloucestershire, um, which they rented again, because uh, whilst I had a very privileged upbringing, Dad never had any money. Right. Um, he had the army, um, you know, but very little actual cash. Right. Um, because all they ever had... Um, all they ever had was um, that huge house. He was brought up in an enormous house in Somerset. Right. Um, uh, when they sold it after my grandmother died, they sold it. Uh, Mum and dad sold it in 1965, I think. And um, they got 30,000 for it. Wow. It must be worth, oh, four or five million now. Wow. Because uh, it was huge and ancient. Yeah. Um, because my father. My, sorry, my dad's um, father, my grandfather, who I never met, he was dead before I was born, he was 
the youngest son of a family that had gone to Australia a hundred years before, not on the um, uh, prison ships, <laughs> I, I hasten to add. And um, he and they'd, they'd started sheep farming in Queensland. Wow. So, and they somehow got hold of a hell of a lot of land, I mean, masses of land. And my grandfather was sent back to England to re-establish the family uh, and to become a gentleman. Right. Barmy. But, wow. And he never worked. Right. Of course, because he, he was a gentleman, so he right. didn't work. Yeah. Um, and my mum's side, um, he is descends from a very um, active industrialist in the 1850s right. who invented, there's a, uh, um, he basically built steel ships wow. uh, right at the start of steel yeah. ships yeah. up in Newcastle. Okay. And they had a, f uh, a yard for making them that employed 10,000 people. Wow. Uh, called uh, Palmer's Yard. Wow. In Jarrow. Wow. And if, actually, that's where the, the 1930 march started from. Yeah. But by then, the family had gone from the yeah. business. And he obviously was a very big driving force. But after that, I think his son did some work there. Um, after that, they, they just lived on their, the, their money. Right. Um, so my, the background, my background is that there was very little knowledge about the modern world and virtually no understanding of what the world of work was. Right. Okay. Uh, Post-war. They'd been involved in the war and their mum had been in the um, a Wren yeah. and a land girl. Um, Dad had been in the army and uh, did, did well, I think. He, he got a distinguished, uh, sorry, a, a med, military cross and things like that. So... But he was so. But they none of them had. And when he came out, he was completely baffled about the modern world. It didn't work. So where did you spend most of your like your schooling? Well, most of my schooling start really. I mean, I, I went to um, I went to a, a prep school. Prep school. I went to a um, kid school in uh, Scotland because we when we first came back, we lived in Scotland for a bit uh, at Ecclefechan. Okay. And that's where I first had the taste of school. Um, discipline okay um, because I'd I'd written something and I'd put dots in the middle of all the closed word letters this apparently angered the teacher so I was dragged out given the strap um, and that actually became a feature of my school life being being beaten wow. for just for not being I wasn't um, overtly I was just diff, apparently difficult right. and then I went to prep school um, I had a Fairly torrid time, but the thing is, I enjoyed it. I was fine, yeah. um, and I just liked going like that to people. Yeah. Um, and um, because I got fed up with being told what to do by people who I didn't respect. Yeah, uh, it's very easy to do something um, and to be told what to do by people you respect. Absolutely. It's no problem because you can just go out and do it. It's great. Yeah, if you've got tossers who you don't really yeah uh, think are worth it, then I'm not interested. Absolutely. Just not interested at all. And that got me into loads of trouble in these hierarchical establishments. And so where does climbing fit into Oh, well, climbing started many uh, quite a lot later. Right. I was always interested in... I wanted to do something heroic. Right. And I think that's probably a post-war thing. Yeah. And also a sort of post-empire thing. Yeah. Um, so when 53 came round... Well, after 53, sorry, I was, um, you know, um, the Everest and that yeah, sort of stuff. Sure. Uh, I was interested in the idea of climbing mountains, yeah. but I wasn't interested in going to Everest. 
So I remember making myself an ice axe out of a cricket stump with um, uh, some um, stuff across the top, you know, a piece of wood across yeah, the yeah, top yeah. and carrying it up to the top of hills. Because yeah. uh, we used to go to see friends in the Lake District and things like that. Right. And I spent a lot of time in Scotland right. because my aunt lived on Loch Etiv, right. uh, where we now have a cottage, which was uh, on her land. Um, and as we every holiday we used so to go right there. on the west coast of Scotland. Oh yeah, right in the heart of the big Scottish mountains. Well, interestingly enough, it's on the coastal side. Right. So if you wanted to go climbing from there, it would be quite tricky. Right. Um, Unless you oh, had a boat. If you've got a boat, uh, it takes you half an hour to get down to the Etis Slabs, uh, and we've got a boat. Great. And we've done that. And it's great. Yeah. But um, if you wanted to go further out, it's actually quite a long drive right around. But it's beautiful because the weather's better uh, generally. Yeah. Um, and the um, because it's lower down, uh, and it doesn't feel like you're enclosed by the mountains. Yeah. I've never actually wanted to live in the mountains. Um, I always wanted to live. Uh, if I could see them, it's great. It's like being here, seeing yeah, Stanage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I don't want to be in the valley, as it were, like Chamonix. I, I sure. wouldn't want to live actually in Chamonix. Brilliant. Well, we'll come to Scotland. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But would you? So your background. I mean, you it sounds like in a way you you could have been uh, you could have easily gone into the military. Oh, or dad was politics. Or something. Dad. Well, well you dad didn't was do any of that. No. You? no. Dad was keen that, to, but he was he was great because he was a uh, he was a very nice bloke. He was a very mild bloke in some respects, yeah. um, and not terribly opinionated, unlike my mum. Um, and um, so my memories of him are a bit wishy-washy, really. Yeah, sure. uh, but he was very understanding when I told him I wasn't going to go in the bloody army. Uh, after I left Eton, I was bugging if I was going in the army because all the people I thought were complete tossers uh, had gone into the army. Or uh, politics, maybe. Uh, well, politics didn't actually raise a... No. It wasn't... We were not anything like as um, uh, exposed to the idea Right. of anything like that because there was no social media there was none of communication was virtually yeah. i didn't have I, I did have a radio at school which i shouldn't have had but i did uh, but i probably i think i only listened to radio luxembourg and that right. sort of stuff you yeah. know there wasn't that pressure so and we had no politics in our family so climbing was later then was well climbing started um really um i went to uh, because i'd not been a particularly good student at eton and actually they were very good at streaming there. If you had, if you were anything like any good or bright and obviously bright and compliant, bang, they pushed you and hard. If you were at all a little difficult yeah. and didn't really want to get on with it, they blocked you off. They didn't care. They were getting the money. Um, yeah. And they, so I got very little encouragement there. Yeah. I did my A-levels and I got them, but they weren't good. So I, when I came back, I, I, when I left... Uh, I went to Greece for um, for a, a holiday, which was interesting. And, it, you know, suddenly the world opened up because we'd not been away on holiday at all, sure. hardly. We'd been to Scotland. You know, we didn't you didn't go on holidays yeah, yeah. Um, in the, those days. And um, so th then I went, um, I worked for a year, year, nine months um, in the woods, uh, being a um, lumberjack, really, um, as a, a gopher. In Scotland? No, no, no. This is this is in Sirencester. Right. Um, and uh, that was very instructive because suddenly I was a public school boy slung into a genuinely physical work environment. And it was bloody marvellous. I loved it. And I, the ganger I had was Irish, very fiery, red-haired Irishman who was pretty wild, really. Um, and his brother was on hunger strike at the time. 
in Ireland, and he was, but he loved having an Eton boy who he could order about. But he was very good to me. He, he wasn't, um, he wasn't vindictive or anything like that. But he used to say, "Right, Richard, go and do this, go and do that, pick up this, run there, run that, then all the rest of it." And he loved it yeah, yeah. because it gave him some sense of power. But it was a fabulous education for me. Suddenly, my education was being broadened socially, which was great. Absolutely great. And that then continued. I then went to um, uh, a technical college to redo some A-levels to try and get better results. Yeah. And I had a year in Cheltenham. And it was there uh, I met a friend of mine who now lives in Canada. And um, we went climbing. Uh, we went out walking, firstly, in um, uh, around the area. And there's lots of crags around there, little tiny crags. They're not like good ones but a little limestone on the, on the um, escarpment. And uh, we went and we looked at these things and we thought, oh, we'll have a go at those and blah, blah, blah. And we used to climb. We, we went in the end to Winchcombe Golf Course and they had a small 20-foot crag there and we just climbed on it um, and just thought this was great. Like kids, really, like, you know, just climbing. thought it was absolutely great. Trouble is that this crag was, had, it was quite solid, but it had lots of flakes on it, which were... You know, in any normal climbing environment, they all get torn off, but nobody climbed on it except for us. And eventually I pulled one off and landed on the floor from 20 foot up, um, wearing big boots, you know, not climbing boots, but just work boots, as it were. Um, and I I think I chipped a bone in my heel. Anyway, I had to go down to um, hospital, get fixed. And that night we were in the pub thinking, well, this is all a bit of a pain. And um, we had a deep conversation about whether we should continue climbing and uh, buy a rope or give up. And after several pints, we decided that we'd buy a rope. And that's when we started climbing. That was a turning point. That, absolutely, that was it. A moment of truth. A moment of truth. And I went down the next day to... Um, uh, with a general sports store in, um, it was a chain, I'm trying to think of its name, I can't think of its name now, um, in Cheltenham, and uh, said, have you got any climbing rope? No, 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 no. Can you get it? Well, I think we might. And uh, eventually I bought 120 foot, there it is, um, of um, number three, I think, or is it number four, one of the two? Anyway, it's another We're level. looking at that, that's a hawser-laid rope. Hawser-laid rope, which is now stiff as a um, board. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we started climbing on. And um, I, we had a, the old-fashioned hemp waist loop, you know, yeah. washing line tied around your waist, clipped in with a carabiner, um, old-fashioned Hyatt carabiner with a yeah. terrible sharp noses, and um, clipped onto a, um, a tarbuck knot, because I'd bought a book by then. I'd bought Alan Blackshaw's book, uh, which became my Bible. And we taught ourselves climbing. And the idea was, of course, then, is it don't fall off. Absolutely, because completely. Because if you fall off, well, it's going to be a nightmare. Completely. Well, what happened in the end was I bought um, I bought a peg uh, and I carried my hammer from home, drilled a hole in it, and, uh, you know, carried that from, nicked that from home. And um, and I had a nut. I had a, on a wire. It was a one nut. It was an old troll nut. Um, old. I mean, it was a troll nut. And I had, that's what we started with, to be honest. Uh, I thought that we could get up anything. But we weren't climbing on named routes or anything, and we were climbing on these funny little places on Leckhampton, and uh, we managed. Confidence you know, of youth. Absolutely, and we were, you know, we were reasonably fit. 
Um, so how did you go from there to working in this uh, a, a shop? Uh, oh, well, I went to university sport. after that. All oh, right, okay. I went to university after that. I went to Surrey, and um, that was miles away from any climbing. So we used to go down to um, Harrison's, which I hated. It was it was too physical and too bouldery for me. Yeah. Um, but um, I started climbing, and when I got there, I, climbing became uh, my passion. I wasn't interested in anything else. I wasn't interested in work, girls, anything. Climbing. Uh, all I thought about, I read all the guidebooks I could get my hands on, and started to. And I went. To, I went to bought some rock boots from Tony Wilmot at the YHA. Um, you know, because there was nothing else. There was so little available. Um, Galibier. Um, they were, were Galibier Pierre Alain boots, um, and they were great. They're very stiff, not not sticky, and they were great. But um, and I bought eventually. Um, I bought a Willens harness. But that was a, on, on a bit. Yeah. Um, and bits and pieces of gear. Started to amass bits and pieces so of Alpine gear. Alpine Sports was after university. Was oh, it? yes. Um, when I left university. And then I had a, a, a period at the university where we um, climbed more and more and more. And I and a friend of mine basically revitalised the climbing club. There was one bloke who was rumoured to have climbed White Slab. Um, but we never saw him because he was in the bar all the time. Um, and But we no one else there to teach us. So... All of my climbing has been self-taught. Yeah. It took me three years to be able to, to get to leading the corner. Yeah. Um, but the year that we left, after that, 74, I think it was, that um, I left, we went to um, Norway um, and we had a fantastic um, two-month holiday in Norway. Uh, Sally, I'd met Sally by then, yeah. um, and she came along and there was uh, half a dozen of us who went to Norway and we did phenomenal new routes. Um, on, on uh, well, we went. To, we did a, we did Stettin by the South Pillar, which we thought was the first free ascent. But when I look back on it, it wasn't. And we actually used a peg, I think, at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it was unknown to us. Nobody, I, we didn't know anybody who'd done it. We we hired a boat. We asked a fisherman if he could take us there, um, and he said, "Yeah, I'll be back in a week." And we were completely cut off. Yeah. Uh, but proper commitment. Oh, proper commitment. So, how did you go from there? to uh, opening the legendary shop outside? Ah, well, that's through Alpine Sports. Right. Um, and I worked there. I worked, after I'd left university, um, I wanted to stay in climbing because I thought, sod it, the whole life out there. And I had no clue about what I should do. I had no idea. All I knew was that I wanted to be working with people rather than sat behind a desk or whatever. Yeah. Not, not a computer because that didn't... Com it, didn't matter in those days. It wasn't a big deal. Sure. So I thought, well, I'll go and get a job. And I wrote off to various uh, job in the shop. And I wrote off to various places and um, got very little response. I mean, in the lakes and uh, one in Exeter. Um, because in those days, there were lots of um, independent stores uh, dotted around the country, like you would expect, because there was no mail order was in its infancy, etc., etc. And, the only, and I got a response from Martin Green at Alpine Sports. And he said, yeah, he said, Why don't, come and have an interview in London. And if we like you, uh, I'll pay you 35 quid a week. And I thought, wow, money. Um, so I went and he said, yep, OK, you can start. And this so, was a legendary shop, wasn't it? Kensington oh, High Street. That's when, right. I, when I was starting Well, out, no, this was before Kensington. Before that. This was uh, the, the little shop um, we had in... Um, Hoban, no, no, it was before Hoban even. 
Anyway, it was in the West End. Yeah. And um, it was a very small room. And we were tucked down the bottom. And we were really only there to help the thing keep going during the summer. Because skiing, which was the big deal about alpine sports, uh, obviously completely ruled the um, winter. Yeah. Um, and it was very... Martin Green was a wild entrepreneur. He had no... He was from a rich background. His father, I think, was a cons, in the construction business. Um, and um, he just went for it. He'd buy anything he wanted. He'd, he had, did, didn't really have a very strong idea of proper economics. So um, how, how long were you there? Was oh, I was there for um, oh, quite a while, three years. Um, no, more, more. I would, no, I was there for... Let's have a think there. I think it was... Uh, I moved in... Must have been... Uh, 78, 79. Right. So I was there for four or five years, six yeah. years, and um, ran the climbing department. And it was there that all the, the notions of what subsequently carried on were born. And it's basically, it was, we employed climbers, we were climbers, and so when customers came in, uh, they came into our department, and I ran it and bought everything and everything else and was on the shop floor. We gave our customers what we... what what we would want because all of us lot were really in essence customers we weren't shopkeepers we were customers we happened to be behind the counter yeah. um uh, and that had its own um drawbacks because some of the people we employed quite liked being behind the counter and uh, took quite a lot of uh, gear and yeah. so there was a, all that problem was uh, went on because the whole place was not closely run um, but having said that, it was absolute tour de force. It just went whoosh, like that. Um, and we started advertising in the mags, yeah. putting prices in the mags, yeah. you know, a whole page worth of our price list, yeah, yeah. which really pissed a lot of people off. Um, but we just wanted to shake it all up yeah. because it was full of old-fashioned so men quite a revolutionary in suits. Shop in a way. Oh, very much Business. so. Yeah. Very much and so. And so did you meet... Was the link with Wild Country and Mark yeah, well, Balance through Mark, that? Mark, the, the thing that happened in 78, he, when they were introducing friends, yeah. Steve Bean, his Mark's partner, uh, Mark, they wouldn't let Mark out into the shops because he was too damn, um, what's the word, argumentative. Right. And he didn't actually like his customers. Uh, and he thought they, they were getting in the way. Um, all that sort of stuff, you know. Um, anyway, Steve Bean came down to sell friends because nobody had... and. The way we so for first people listening, because there might be a few non-climbers listening, and that, that, that friends are a, basically the first camming device. Yes, as a piece the, of protection for rock climbing. The most revolutionary piece of uh, rock climbing equipment since pearl on ropes, because pearl on ropes obviously didn't break. Blah blah blah, blah nylon and everything, but then these things were the magic bullet at the time for traditional climbing. So nearly all cracks, but not all at that point because they didn't, they weren't tiny, um, were uh, you could protect with significant ease. Yeah, yeah. And for gritstone climbing, etc., etc., they were magnificent. So they they met you and thought. Well, what happened? Now, what happened yeah. is uh, they went to the next door shop. It was just down the road, which was Pindis Sports, which was a big name at the time. Um, subsequently disappeared, and um, they went in there, and one of our. Um, uh, Chris Griffiths, bladder, um, he was in there talking to the lads in there because we used to, you know, lunchtime sort of thing. And he saw these things and he went, wow, 
what? And he and he grabbed Steve Bean by the elbow and said, look, you don't want to be in here. They're not interested in this sort of stuff. Anyway, nobody behind the counter can make an opinion of it. So he grabbed him like that and dragged him around the corner to where we were, into our shop. And I'd come back by then and we saw them. And the first thing we said, right, we'll have 10 of each. And these things were expensive. They were 15 quid. This is in 78 when everything else was three quid. Or one, yeah. Our carabiners were a pound. Um, well, we sold them for a pound. So that's the week's wages sort of thing for a lot of people. Pretty much, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And um, But we obviously recognised them immediately because we were all climbers and there were good climbers there. I mean, we had um, uh, people like Dickie Swindon and um, Eggy and all those sorts of people. Yeah. And even um, Kim Carrigan worked there for a while. Right, legendary. Um, and um, so we had people like that and everyone was a climber. They saw it immediately. They wanted to have them. And that's the note, and that's how we went around buying stuff. We bought stuff that we wanted. Uh, and so we, how uh, did you end up getting more closely linked to Wild Country then? And moved oh, up, uh, well, what happened after that, that was the first interaction yeah. with it. And subsequently, um, uh, some time later, when the friends had obviously taken off and things were going really very well, um, Mark rang me up and said, Do you want a job? You know, and um, she'd be in the eighties now. 90s, yeah, it'll be early early eighties. Yeah, and um, because the early eighties, I think it was probably eighty two. So in that case, I must have worked. And at, friends were being made in Derbyshire here. Yes, they were Tidesville. being made. They were being made in Tideswell. Yeah. Um, no, in Eam. In Eam. In Eam. To start with, um, and um, he he rang me up, and then I went. I came up and said, "Yeah, okay, I'll be your sales manager." was a very interesting experience because Mark was a remarkable man. Um, but like an awful lot of remarkable men, he was very strong on his strengths and very weak on his weaknesses. So life working with Mark was not easy. And there were a lot of people who came through and left uh, because they couldn't get on with Mark. I got on with him pretty well because I challenged him a lot. Um, because he had no, he, he didn't have a, a genuine feel for the people he was t serving, um, if, if you like. He was trying, in a way, his strength was solving problems. Well, he recognised, the thing is, don't forget, his first big breakthrough, Friends, it wasn't his, it was Jardine's, but he saw it. And he said, yes, I can do it. Yes, I can make these. And he saw the value of this. Um, so he was very, very clear. He could pare away all that stuff. And... He was always looking like that. He had this vision that was like that. And, and, the, and the problem with him is he couldn't see sideways. I don't mean he wasn't lateral thinking, because he could do that as well. But that was only when it was technical. And um, as a result, he did brilliantly. Um, but um, he, he couldn't see, you know, when you look at our, well, the history of Wild Country in the end, he couldn't see how to make it into a world force, unlike Chouinard, who yeah. could. Um, and um, but that was brilliant when it came up and, here. And was and obviously that was the link with the shop. Yep. Was that the next. Well, the next stage was that uh, after three or four years of working there, three years or whatever. To be honest, I was getting. I wasn't very good at it. To be honest, being a sales manager, I think by then no, I was a sales manager. I wasn't very good at it because I. I didn't like only selling. A very limited product range. Sure. Um, and I used to go out and do uh, to the shops and talk to them. And nearly all the people I talked to, I found pretty disappointing. 
to the extent that they, A, they wanted to play power games and they didn't want to see you half the time. Uh, you know, oh, no, no, we don't want to see you, and all that sort of stuff. And you think, come on, get a grip, you know. I mean, uh, you're supposed to be a climbing shop. And all so this what sort. was the vision with the shop outside that oh, you started? Right. Okay. And have a well, well, when we started, I mean, uh, what, the vision was I was getting bored of this and I was thinking about doing something else. Um, and I wasn't terribly enjoying working the working environment. So I was thinking of opening a shop um, again in the peak. Um, and because I suddenly realised, as Sally was saying, there wasn't anything up here. Everybody was coming here climbing. There was, there was one shop up in, um, uh, further up the valley. Um, oh God, it was, what's his name? Um, oh, well, there was Matlock, yes. There was... Um, Otherwise Hitch and Hike, maybe? Yeah, there was Hitch and Hike, but that was a very low-key... That was much more a caving business. Yeah. Um, there was... Um, oh, I can't think, but there was something in... Um, uh, in further up the valley. Yeah. But it was... it was There was no really effort going into sure. it. There was places in Matlock, there were yeah. places in Sheffield, etc. So your vision was for... Was it somewhere for Bigger. for real climbers? Yep. Bigger? Yep. I wanted a big shop. I didn't want a small shop because I know that people don't like small shops. They go in and they feel like this, especially if you've got somebody looking at you saying, well, are you going to buy anything? You know... And I wanted, um, I wanted, the I wanted there, to be a proper communal centre for outdoor people, but primarily climbers. We've always called ourselves a climbing shop. Now it's not quite fair because eighty percent of our turnover is um, uh, in walking and um, mountaineering or other things. Um, but the the ethos behind it has always been climbers and pr most of the um, people, the, the staff that we've had over the years have been climbers. It's not always the case, but most of them have been and still are. And it's true to, it's true to say, isn't it, that a lot of brands have always um, seen your shop. It's a badge of honour to get well, product. It took a long time to get there. Right. It didn't start like that to start with. I mean, I, don't forget, I'd come out of Alpine Sports. Alpine Sports had had um, very significant problems. Um, and they'd gone bust. People had lost money who I'd been dealing with because I bought personally from all these brands. You know, so I knew everybody, which was great. Um, but I tried very hard when Alpine Sports went down. I tried very, very hard to make sure that people knew um, that their, they, their product was at risk and they should come and get it out. Lots of them didn't do it. Um, one or two did, and they obviously thanked me. But, but the people who didn't do it, Cordy was one. I told him, I said, take your bloody stuff out. Come and take it out because it's going to get impounded any minute. Yeah. They didn't do it. And they lost a lot of money. But uh, my reputation wasn't scarred right. because I bought a lot from them and I tried hard to preserve them yeah. because the personal side of the whole business has been incredibly important to me. Yeah. Um, and anyway, so when we started up again, I had a pretty good shot at going out and, and I was put in charge of it. I didn't open the shop. That was opened by... Dave Jones, who was a climber, who worked for, for us, um, but he didn't have the punch to get it going. So I moved in after six months as the in-situ um, manager. Yeah. Um, and I did all the buying and all that stuff in those days. Um, and we just got going and we hit the ground absolutely running because we were punchy and we were alive. And people came in and they... We used to... The, the, what I used to tell the staff, I used to say, when you talk to customers, you've got to look like you want to talk to them and you've got to smile. You've got to be friendly and, nice and pay attention to them. And don't 
Just give them what they want. Grill them a bit. And this is up to you. You're going to have to be careful how you do it because somebody might punch you in the face. <laughs> but you, but they need when people say, "I want, um, I need something to do," so and that you then you ask them, right? What do you want it to do? And they tell you. Uh, but what they often tell you has been told to them by some imaginary ambition. And so what you actually do is you say, well, "Come on now, what do you really want it to do?" And so you can find down people's choices so they get the right piece of gear. So it's it's very personalised. Oh, very personalised, yes. I mean, obviously, people pick things up. And, and then once them. you once you know what, what it is they're going to do, you can then help oh. them feel confident. And the they will talk to you about their... Uh, you know, you can say to them, well, what, you know, what have you done? How much have you done in terms of both climbing and all the rest of it? And um, uh, most people respond to this. Occasionally, somebody is going, oh, fuck you. Yeah. Sorry. Um, but uh, I remember, I mean, just to sort of yeah. talk about that, I remember, I think, the new Roots book for the people ah, used to be in your shop. It, it still is, but so it's you, not used any longer, right. of course. Um, yes, uh, so, it's still so there. So sort of the, the, the oh, cutting-edge people who were going out doing first ascents, routes yep. that have never been done before, would come to the yep. shop and yep. write up Absolutely. in your shop what they've been doing. So um, it was that we were, real genuine... We really wanted this to be the case because we were going out climbing after work all the time and meeting. We met all these people all the time. One of the things that completely flabbergasted people uh, who came and worked for us, because we had a lot of part-time staff and things like that, was that they would be in the shop and people like Ron Fawcett would walk in and they'd have a talk with him and they were starstruck, you know. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't happen so much now because there are more people. Or Jerry Moffat or Ben Moon. Absolutely. All of these, all of these the people. Absolutely yeah. all of these people would come in. Um, and, you know, um, Johnny Dawes and all these people. Um, and so it was a centre. Uh, and well, that's why we, in many respects, then we built onto the shop yeah. and added onto it. And the climbing department has always been a very, very strong element, very visual element. With everything racked up, and of course you've got like a, this, you've you got know. a cafe upstairs with the uh, traditional vital. food, yep. climbers breakfast, yep, absolutely. And of course you famous for doing. I think the other thing that I've noticed is mm. is, is, is giving back to the staff. So two things: yep. one is that you'd well, or to the climbing community, you had these talks upstairs yep. where you get famous yep. mountaineers, oh, world famous. We had Royal, uh, Royal Robins and people like that That's came. Right. But a lot of this was done uh, in uh, relationship with the Alpine Club. Yeah. Uh, but also we've had it's been a venue for book launches. Yeah. So the famous people come and talk about their books and that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. And we love having that. Ab that's absolutely a key part of what we're doing is to make things this communal centre. Brilliant. And also, Dick, I know that for quite a number of years you had um, a sort of chalet out in Chamonix yep. in the Alps and you would get your staff yep. out there. Yep. So that they would be either already keen mountaineers, or if they didn't, it was a way of. Well, it was a way of. It was a way. We we went to Chamonix a couple of times. We went um, up to Scotland um, and places like that. You know, we we what we wanted to do was introduce people to environments they hadn't been into. Whether they then went off and did um, winter climbing is a completely different matter. But they went out. I mean, Chamonix is in the winter is a magnificent place. Yeah. So they suddenly got this impression of what it was like and how cold it could be. Uh, and when they came home and they went out and did a bit of ice climbing and a bit of this and a bit of that. And some of them, like Ezra Zidder and people like that, and Andy Kirkpatrick used to go out and do all sorts, you know, and Andy would go out soloing and I'd give him a bollocking um, uh, because I didn't want him out soloing on our time. Uh, so, he, say, so he dragged you, up. How do you try and manage Andy Kirkpatrick? Oh, he was OK, you know. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't always get what you would call um, dedicated work. 
because he'd be behind the counter writing his book or whatever he might be doing or trying to. Presumably brilliant for you because you've got a, somebody you could go off climbing with as well. Well, uh, completely. I mean, I, I did climb with him a bit um, both locally and in Scotland yeah. um, and um, in the Alps. We tried to do the Drew Couloir, but we got uh, spin drift out of it. Yeah. But that was I was very, very impressed um, because he was a bit of he was a bit shambolic at home. You know, you, you're never quite sure what he was going to do or he's going to trip over something or, you know, and you'd say, have you done this? He'd go, oh, not too. But on the hill, he was tremendous. That's where he gets his focus. Yeah, it? he was tremendous. He was very, very careful. He was very, very understanding about everything uh, you could. If you, you know, I mean, if I wanted to do and I had more experience, I think, at that point than he did yeah, being in the Alps. But he was I was really impressed. Right. Uh, he was the most impressive person I've climbed with. Um, just like that, you know, in, in every sphere. He was perfect. It's a real shame we didn't get a chance to test the climbing skills because we didn't get high enough on the route. Sure. So um, North Faces, Alps in Winter, that's been your thing, hasn't it? Yes, I went What to... is it about that? Because to people ah. listening, we're, we're talking about North Faces that are obviously they're North Faces, they're cold. Yep. But you're going there in winter. Yep. And these... The Eiger, the Matterhorn, hmm. the Drew, the well, Twats, they're big things. So to people who might not be um, listening, who are not mountaineers, this is kind of... It's hardcore, isn't it? It's not everybody's cup of tea. Ah, completely. You're not going to be finding In those days, those very much so, because there was nobody doing it. Early or 80s. hardly anybody. Early 80s. Hardly anybody doing it. Uh, British, I say. There were some French guys out there, and there were some Brits. But over the... I, mean, I went, I think, for 20 years, um, every year. I may have missed one, I can't remember. So but... mixed climbing, we're looking at you, well, you've got your kit up here, but yep. I mean, obviously a lot of it, what might be a rock climbing summer is covered in snow and ice now yep. in winter, so oh, completely. ice axes are... Yeah. Completely, I mean, you know, going and climbing on the Jarras, it's it's a it's a mixed climbing uh, fest, as it were, all the way. No mobile phone or radio no. if you get into trouble, no. it's not we, like we used We were very careful. Uh, I, I climbed with Frank, my friend Frank, who I was... Frank the Decorator. Frank the Decorator, um, or and also known um, as Flying Frank because he took a lot of time in the air when he was uh, okay. climbing. I mean, he was bold. He was too bold most of the time um, for his own good, but he was very strong um, and he was pretty good. Um, and he uh, used to just climb all sorts of things. And then all of a sudden he'd fall off, you know. So going with him was a mixed blessing in some respects. So did but, you do a lot with, with Frank? Yeah, well, I started climbing with um, a chap called Alistair Morgan started going to the Alps in winter. The reason I went to the Alps in winter was purely because having had children, started um, with the children, suddenly summer holidays became summer holidays. Sure. And I we had one holiday where I think we went to the Alps um, with the children and the family. And I, it was awful um, because I was just... All I wanted to do was be out on the hill. Yeah. And, and it just didn't work. No, sure. So after that... Um, it was I uh, started properly going um, to the uh, to the Alps. Then we went to the Himalayas in '85. I went to the Himalayas with um, uh, Johnny Jones, friend of mine, who I'd climbed with a lot in London, um, and um, uh, Al Morgan um, again, this uh, friend of mine who I'd started climbing with um, in the winter. And that winter climbing gave me a little bit of an idea of we could go and do something in the Himalayas. And I pushed for this. And um, Martin, what's his name from Glenmore Lodge? Um, Burroughs Smith. Martin he came with us because he was a friend of John's. Right. 
Uh, so there were four of us. Unfortunately, he had to go home early. But anyway, what happened was we climbed, uh, we had an attempt at a thing called Meru. Yeah. Um, we got um, we got further up than anybody got for another 10 years, Yeah. Uh, which is impressive considering the others had very little experience. Sure. Uh, I Dare I say it myself, it was primarily my effort. I did all the leading, um, but we got to a point where we, it was too much for us. Sure. Uh, and the others and gave it only, up. It only got climbed a few years ago, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, so a... on the route that we wanted to do. Yeah. And um, to be honest, it was uh, it was good, but it was two months. Well, we'd been away six weeks and sure. I couldn't do that. No. So I th but I liked the thing I yearned for. I never, ever wanted to climb every day. Something I didn't want to do. What I wanted to do, it was to have in my mind, and this goes back to this heroic thing, some big project. So going to the Alps to do the classic North Faces, which is what I really wanted to do. And of course, you're out there doing it for yep. real. Yep. On your two weeks. Yep. Normally. Yep. Then back to family, back to the shop. Back and then to the of shop. course you, you're passing the... on that information to yep. the staff. And, yep. And um... testing all this stuff. And, and then I could go back legitimately and say to people, look, this doesn't work. Yeah. Think about the, you know, and I had battles with people for ages about the cut of clothing. So you never, if you, if, yeah, so the classic thing for people listening would be uh, when someone designs a jacket and they say it's great for climbing, but actually when you put a harness on, it means you can't move. And that you're, was one of your That was my test pieces. Well, the, the, uh, you yeah. have to be able to move your What you had to do, if, from a, if they said it was a climbing jacket, you're, you're right. If they said it was a climbing jacket, you've got to be able to put it on, put a harness over it and keep it tight so it's not billowed at the front because so you can see your feet. Yeah. And you've got to be able to lift your arms up, yeah. up like that and and, and go right up with your axes yeah. at full length. Absolutely. And it's not got to pull out. And what about the hood? Uh, the hood needs to be a proper, what I would call a Scottish hood. In other words, not an American hood. Um, all the American hoods were designed differently because everybody wore baseball bloody caps. So they put that on, that stuck out, and they had a skimpy hood. So what you want is a proper wired um, hood that was something that you could fit closely and you could move your head and it would move. And see in a storm. And see in a storm and be able to just get edge it down so you could... Um... So I guess in a way, if you I mean, imagine you at a trade show... Oh, it was a bastard. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yes. No, people must have been thinking, oh, here it comes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I felt yeah. on a mission. And because I had customers who I wanted to have what was good and what I knew was good. So I think, I mean, I, so I probably true. had a reputation for being a bit of a sod um, or, or being, again, a bit like my school days, being trouble. Yeah. But I think in the end, people realized that it wasn't, um, I wasn't being just commercially difficult. I wanted the right stuff. The reason I wanted it because I wanted it. Yeah. I wanted to be able to use it, yeah. and that's where things like you know when Rab started developing vaporize and that sort of stuff, I was really keen because I knew this stuff worked. Yeah. So what was it like working with Rab? In the oh, days? good, good. He was very. Um, the great thing about Rab was he was coming at it from the same angle as me. He was a user, and he knew what he wanted. He'd he'd seen Hector whatever his name was, in um, Argentina down there when he was down in Chile and played, you know, and the down-making. And he, and he was obviously looking for something. Um, and he started making, and he was meticulous. And I think his notion of design, I don't think he was gifted, but he knew roughly what he wanted. Um, it wasn't perfect, but then, to be honest, there wasn't much that was in those days. And... Um, 
So we talked a lot about the evolution of things. I went to him specifically when it came to making sleeping bags, not for um, the ordinary person, but making them for um, what I wanted, which was a mountain bag. Uh, I did take him, there was very little market <laughs> because there weren't many, there was nobody out there climbing. We climbed, when we went on the Jurass, we were on the Walker in winter for five days, not a single other person on the mountain. But Rab um, understood that world because he himself had been there. He'd, uh, he'd the been, been on the cross, um, uh, had a hard time on the cross. We, I can see some sleeping bags behind you. Is yes. this one of the this things is, This that one Rab here, had... this was designed with Rab, a proper, this was a bag we, I could take on the hill. It would stuff away. I mean, it's very nice and puffy because it's been out here. And I asked Rab to make a bag like this, which, and we worked on it for quite a long time, being able to open it so you could sit on your bivouac. And it's not extra long for sitting. And you could actually hold a stove in your the hand. The interesting thing about your shop is that you've come in, people who haven't been mm. there, I recommend you go there. I mean, it's a, it's an institution. Yes, British I hope it outside. is. It yeah. is, and now your sons are running it. Yep. Robert and James. Yep. And the team there, still great knowledge. But you, you go in there and, and people are like, what's that? And there's all this climbing stuff yeah. hanging up, porter yep. ledges, yep. sleeping bags like this, yep. things that you might not sell that much of, oh. but you can get hold of stuff if people want it. Of course. But people realise when they're going there, this it, is a proper, it's a proper mountaineers, store. Yeah. climbers. And there's a shop. lot of old stuff. So actually people can hang in. People give us stuff. But interestingly, it's not elitist. I can remember walking to oh. those shops back in the day where you were almost, you know, I don't know, a young lad buying my first rock shoes in Sheffield. Yep. And you felt a bit awkward about it. You guys, I would imagine, on the shop floor can spot people who are new. Very much. Making them feel. Yeah, so well, we've all the been there. Of, yeah. We've all been there. We've all been starters as it were, and you, and you want to encourage people, yeah. you know. I mean, we've had a very interesting career of outside. We've started uh, as we in the shop um, and developed that. And then we tried to develop the whole business because that's really the standard business plan is to consistently expand, give more opportunities to people and blah, blah, blah. So we had a shop in Wales and then we did all sorts of things like that. We went to London with a shop, which was a mistake with Patagonia um, and uh, things like that. And so we went up, we had, and we realized at some point that we were doing the wrong thing because um, our shop was too focused on being a communal center and you can't create those absolutely everywhere. And you can't actually find the right people. To, so and the, really the right it. people, if they're going to do it, they'll do it for themselves. You know, it, they won't do it in a chain. I spoke to Andy Kirkpatrick the other day and he summed it up nicely. He said, he said, he said, he thought that everybody that works there, they really care. Yes, And that's exactly. a rare thing, isn't it? Uh, well, good for him because I'm, I'm very pleased because that's essentially what I want. Yeah. I want people to care uh, because if they care, they can have a brilliant time working there because they can talk about everything and it feels like a club um, and the customers will always come back because they like it. I remember thinking about, uh, you know, wondering about climbing Master's Edge at Millstone, which is this iconic yeah. route. Your son, James, James had, had climbed it. I yeah. think the same month he climbed the north face of the Alligator. That's right. He's the real deal. Pretty much the same week. <laughs> but the equipment that you need for that route yeah. is behind the counter yes. in outside. So mm. you can go and borrow, borrow it. it. And same for Braille Trail, which yeah. is, I think is a real... That's a special yeah. thing, isn't it? Yeah, oh, absolutely. But, Dick, yeah. 
just thinking of COVID, obviously it was very difficult, but I think on the whole it's been, oh. it's been a good time for independent oh, sports. It's been brilliant. It? Yeah, there's so few of us now. There's very, very few who are, can genuinely hold their heads up and say they're specialists. Uh, and there are some. Uh, they're spread out across the country now. They're not like they used to be. They used to be in every town. There was somebody you could go and talk to who knew something about what they were selling. You can't do that now, uh, apart from going to special places. We absolutely intend to be that special place. And your shop, I mean, it's the sort of place that people might come in, not just to buy a kit, they might want to buy some, where to go climbing that Oh, day. completely. And we ask people, the we ask people uh, where, they, where they've been and what they've done. And, and if they come in regularly, you say, oh, come on, what have you been up to? And then they can, you know, they might tell you that they've been um, to Mid Wales or something like that. And you say, oh, have you been to Thlangothlan and have you done this? And, and, you know, I know a really good place, blah, blah, blah. And that's the community. Bit. And that's the, and they will tell you as well. They will come and say, we went to somebody. And you, oh, wow. Um, so, you know, from your point of view, you think, oh, let's go and have a look. And of course, you're online as well, which yep. is a big part of any modern business. Now. And that's something that we know that we've got to do better at. Because it was a complete and utter lifesaver for us um, in the pandemic. Uh, our online turnover doubled um, and it's gone back, but it's still not. It hasn't gone back to what it was because more people know we're there. Uh, and, but um, it's something that we, we are going to invest in significantly. Decent breakfast, Dick, upstairs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully that'll remain. You know, God, I don't want to get rid of that. Yeah. <laughs> people like the cafe. They love it. Yeah. And um, we love having it because it does this double job. It gives you uh, somewhere for people to stop. To meet and, and chat. Meet and chat and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it gives us that evening venue, the talk. Um, which is very important to get good people there, like the Alpine Club do their lectures there. And people turn up and they're free and people turn up um, Dick, from all over. It's been a pleasure and an honour to chat. Brilliant. Thanks. I hope I haven't said too much. No, no, it's great. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe, hit like or leave comments. That would be brilliant. See you next time.